This is Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister, the Disrupt Meister. Welcome to This Week in Bitcoin. Today is September the 13th, 2019. Strong hand, be a unique beast, value your wealth in Bitcoin. Having hype, unconfiscatable, offended by selling, in motion. All right, best guests in the space, and of course, they're here today. Vortex and Jeet have returned. And this is the first time they've been on the show together because I bring you unique combos like this. Okay, we're going to jump right into the, the news of the day. Uh, and it was the news of yesterday. The European Central Bank on Thursday cut its interest rates 10 basis points to a record low of negative 0.5% and will in November kick off a fresh round of stimulus. All right, what's this mean, G, for Bitcoin? Uh, is the writing on the wall? The writing has been on the wall for a while. Should Europeans be getting into Bitcoin? Um, well, everyone should be getting into Bitcoin, of course. Um, but, uh, you know, negative interest rates are really interesting because um, this is something that um, you, when you look on the TV um, and you have these uh, anchors talking about it or when you read some of the mainstream newspapers, they are, they're kind of um, engaging in a process of trying to uh, mainstream negative interest rates or making it seem like this is something that's completely natural and expected. But when you kind of read between the lines of like the ECB's actual statements and, um, you know, consider like economic policy for all of history up until this point, it's obviously not very mainstream. And you're seeing some kind of cracks where you've got like these, uh, you know, big time um, kind of investors who show up on CNBC every week and, and they're like foaming at the mouth like Kramer in 2008 explaining why this is insane. <laughs> so it's kind of fun to watch. We're not in a crisis or anything, and uh, this isn't the, the thing that's going to pop the bubble. But um, it's just kind of it's an, another example of um, central bank policy resulting in uh, like kind of a misallocation in resources. Um, and just to, um, I spent some time trying to think about like how I would explain it and if I actually understand negative interest rates. And um, I think the key thing that you guys need to understand uh, there's there's really two two key points. So the first is like why do negative interest rates not make sense? So generally, if I'm giving somebody a loan, um, I'm doing it as a, as a basket of loans and I'm charging a positive interest rate, like, let's say something like 5%. And the idea is across a broad portfolio, I'm getting compensated 5% for the risk that the borrower defaults. And in fact, uh, you know, there's, if, if you're charging somebody 1%, it's almost not worth it for you to take the risk of a default, right? So low interest rates or zero interest rates, you kind of don't want to make the loan. Negative interest rates where you're giving somebody more money and you're not getting any money back is just the most ridiculous thing. A rational actor would never um, like make a loan for a negative interest rate. And then, um, then you go into, well, what's driving negative interest rates or negative yields? Um, and it's, it's like everything else. Um, it's, it's about price and it's about supply and demand. And so um, the way to think about the supply and demand dynamics of these, um, of these negative yielding uh, debt in, in Europe is, the supply side is who's, who's issuing this debt? Well, who issues really high quality debt in Europe? There's no European Central Bank issuing bonds. There is uh, Germany and they have a budget surplus. They're not gonna be issuing any new debt. All the um, big like high quality corporate borrowers are 10 years into a bull cycle. They're probably over levered as is. They're not gonna be raising any new debt. And all the countries in the periphery are not really in a position to be raising any new debt. So the supply of, of like high quality debt is pretty fixed. And then you go to the demand side and what you realize is there are a ton of these um, buyers who are, who are buying uneconomically. They're not buying for economic and rational reasons. There's two, there's like three major parties. So one is the uh, pension funds. So pension funds, just like you and I have an asset allocation of like 60, 40 stocks and bonds. They have their own asset allocations, which includes high quality corporate bonds and high quality sovereign grade bonds. And um, they haven't adjusted. For them, like they need to invest according to what their asset allocation says. And if, if the bonds are yielding negative, the bonds are yielding negative. So they're uneconomically buying. And then you have the banks, which um, like what you or I would call saving or being conservative, keeping cash in the balance sheet. The ECB regards, at, the European Central Bank regards as hoarding. They want to increase like bank loans and everything else. So if a bank has too much cash in the balance sheet, they start charging them fees. So the banks want to avoid those excess reserve fees. So they use that cash and they park it somewhere really safe, which is countries like Germany or, or high quality um, corporate debt. And then the third party is, of course, the ECB, which is now going to be just purchasing bonds in the open market and they're not, they're not paying attention to price. So what's happening is 
interest rates, which are kind of like a benchmark for the rest of the economy and me and you use to like refinance our home as a, it, they, all, they all kind of interact with each other. And this fundamental piece of the economy is now um, like no longer a reliable signal of, uh, you know, price, no longer a reliable signal of, you know, how much you should be charged, uh, no longer a reliable signal of risk. Um, and so what's happening is people, um, like market participants, aren't actually sure how to react. They have models that are based off correlation, but none of their historical models have negative interest. It's just such a wild and out of bounds thing. Um, so th that's kind of my take on it. Vortex, I don't know if you have uh, any take that you care to share. Yeah, so I mean, you pretty much kind of laid it out out there, I think, for everybody right there. I mean, just to recap, I mean, the ECB is relaunching QE at 20 billion euros a month. I mean, just only nine months after they ended their last run. And uh, it's still, of course, negative interest rates. I think they're going to be uh, 0.4 still. Uh, but at the same time, look, uh, between Brexit, the trade wars, uh, you know, uh, between U.S. and China, uh, Europe is sort of feeling the pain now, all right? There, there's, I mean, the whole world is sort of feeling the pain, but Europe is definitely, definitely feeling a squeeze here. Uh, the, you know, this game will be ongoing until someone folds, essentially, right? Because people are essentially, in order to buy these bonds, people either believe in the government or they believe in the central bank that's going to bail everybody out. Uh, and and as, as as he said, <laughs> nobody knows, right? As Jeet said, nobody knows where this is going to go. We got the president of the United States tweeting to to the central bank, you know, lower rates, lower rates. Uh, this is this is th making think making everybody think that it's okay and that we have no inflation. Uh, you know, this is this is definitely part of a longer longer term goal of, of banning cash, but but that can be a different topic. Uh, fundamentally, here the system is broken, as Jeet outlined here. Uh, this is like a, an entirely unprecedented uh, situation. This has never happened in the history of global finance before, and really nobody knows what to expect all we do know is that fundamentally at this point the system is is definitely broken there is definitely uh, things wrong with it uh, that can't continue uh, very much longer into the future and so somebody is going to uh someone's gonna have to call uh someone's gonna have to fold <laughs> on, well, on their this day. is the thing both of you have said a, a key point it is totally unprecedented no one knows what uh it, it will bring so there has to be a place of safety out there and that's why i bring this topic up how does Bitcoin fit into all of this, Pete? Yeah, I think, um, uh, so uh, the person who I've started paying a lot of attention to um, in terms of understanding like uh, how debt cycles work um, and, and particularly how like countries deal with their debt is uh, Ray Dalio. He's got this great book called uh, Big Debt Crises. And uh, he just, he's, he's just done so much work. Um, he's, like a, he's like a large hedge fund manager. He's one of the largest hedge fund managers in the world. And he's He's famous for being very rational and, and uh, results oriented. Um, and, you know, in this book, one of the things that, um, and, and he just kind of goes through case study after case study of how do countries react in different situations. One of the most striking parts of the book is there are so many countries where the central bankers aren't aware of what is the game theoretic best move to make. So they're kind of, they're, these are the most educated people in that country. They're educated in, in the best schools and everything else. And even they aren't sure what the next move is. So historically, you see them making the wrong move all the time. <clears throat> when you bring up that uh, Trump tweet, uh, we should be devaluing our currency as well. So like central, like that's, that's like a tool that people try to use that if you devalue your currency, it makes your country more competitive. If somebody's doing a cost benefit analysis, like where do I want to, you know, start my factory up? They'll, they want to hire the cheapest employees. So they go to the country that has the devalued currency. But, um, and it's like a tool to like spur economic growth that way. Um, but all of this is, uh, it's taking place in the context of like a paradigm shift that's happening where there is this old system and it, it looks like there's some parts of this which are kind of unsustainable. And people are, are recognizing that it's unsustainable. So over the last five years, you've seen pension funds and these other people uh, who have like, you know, large endowments focusing, uh, you know, increasing their allocation to stuff like private equity, to stuff like venture capital, real assets. That's all stuff that isn't marked to market in the market every day they don't want exposure to that. They feel like um, that's kind of like uh, it's too up in the air and it's not something um, that is like kind of like reliable and they don't want to get caught up in bubbles. So they're, they're focused on things like water rights in California, right? That's like an asset class that they're thinking about because they, they want to focus on fundamentals. So all of the smart money is already making these moves to you know, get down to like the real economy. Um, and I think individual investors are eventually going to be making those moves too. When you, when you look at um, what happened when they tried to raise rates, and the market kind of fell out from under everybody and everyone went into a panic. What's happening there is like what they teach you in school is the efficient market hypothesis where everyone is like a super rational actor. Um, 
I, I think you got to take that with a grain of salt because you can see like what happens is nobody wants to be the person who's like the last person in musical chairs, right? So nothing is rational when you think you're going to lose your entire investment, you sell at any price. Um, and I think that's what you saw happening when they tried to raise rates. And um, the next time some event happens, that same rush for the exits is going to happen. And the thing that's uh, kind of becoming increasingly clear is that these central banks, um, they're kind of running out of arrows in their quiver. Like how many more, uh, how many more times can they lower the interest rate? At what point do they lower it to like negative 5% and people just give up as this doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, they're doing the QE now, but how many more tools they have? They have like only three or four more tools. Once you get past QE and, and increasing QE even further, you can start helicoptering money into people's paychecks. But after that, um, the tools are fairly limited and it seems like they don't understand when to put, press the brakes. They don't understand when you got to create a little bit of a buffer. Um, and I think, you know, one of the most interesting things that I saw out of this was the amount of leaks that came out of this meeting. So it looks like apparently like half of uh, the, the cabinet uh, for the ECB was just an open revolt. And um, we've never seen that kind of like, you know, breaking of ranks before in the ECB. So when they were, you know, bullying Greece in 2011, 2012, they were like uh, unbreakable, right? And um, now what you're seeing is people are, are, are kind of uh, having, you know, they're feeling comfortable enough to voice different opinions. They don't feel that current status quo is sustainable. All right, I want to go back to one thing that you said earlier. And the, the, the three major players in all of this, uh, what was the, yeah. the three divisions? What was the first one again? Uh, pension funds and endowments. Okay, they, and you said they, their allocations are just locked in there. They have to get 45% bonds or something like that, right? Yeah, and, and look, I, I, so the, one of the things is uh, I, I, don't have a, I don't have a breakdown of like who is buying what debt. But um, based off of the reading that I've done, I understand it's pension funds. And if they're, pension, if they're like pension funds in the United States and everywhere else, they have an asset allocation and they're not going to shift from that asset allocation. What? Okay. What, why aren't, when are they going to shift though? There's going to have to be a point when they wake up and shift in the big, that, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm looking at here. Ha yeah. 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 So look, um, I think the, uh, so the way that, so first of all, there's two things. So first of all, um, these people who are making decisions at pensions and endowments are like the, the most conservative people you can imagine. So to get hired for that job and to kind of keep your job and to, you know, have a career down the line, you don't necessarily want to be the first person like, you know, rushing open the gates to try to jump into the risky asset classes. So this is a naturally very conservative group. However, um, we're, we've already seen the first signs of um, the kind of rush for Bit rush to Bitcoin. So uh, David Swenson, who is the uh, kind of thought leader in this space, he's the person who made Yale's endowment from like really below average to like l literally the, 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 the uh, kind of endowment that, you know, sovereign nations uh, and sovereign wealth funds look to uh, him for advice. He's invested in um, at least one of A16Z's uh, crypto funds and I think at least one other uh, crypto hedge fund. So through that, he's starting to get exposure to Bitcoin and um, I think some of these other pension funds are now starting to dip their toes either through existing, um, like A16Z, for example, Andreessen Horowitz is like the premier venture capital firm. So the, 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 um, the top tier pensions that are in A16Z now and have you know, gotten an allocation in their crypto fund are the top tier endowments. So if they get a good return out of that fund and they start seeing those results early on, they're gonna look for other players and then other pension funds who aren't able to allocate to Andreessen are going to be looking around for other top tier funds that they can invest in. And I think it's going to come in through the funds first, and then it's going to come into direct allocations to Bitcoin. Right now, I think in order to increase um, adoption, a lot of these hedge funds are framing things in terms of traditional investments where everything is already like vetted and legitimate and past the SEC. Um, in this case, you know, these investments are pretty, um, you know, they're pretty untested. So like outside of Bitcoin and one or two others that you could say have been, you know, thoroughly vetted for security and everything else, there's very few of these investments that are, that you would feel comfortable recommending to an endowment. And again, the people there are very conservative, so they're not going to be the first person to make, to make a jump. But I think as soon as the, uh, you know, as soon as uh, Coinbase IPOs and you see some of those returns showing up in um, existing pension funds, um, there's just going to be a rush towards getting more, getting more uh, exposure to crypto. Very interesting. Coinbase uh, uh, name drop there. We'll, we'll get to them in a second. Pound that like button, people. All right, uh, Vortex, let's go back to, to you real quick. 
A any more thoughts on uh, how this all ties into uh, to Bitcoin? Uh, you, you mentioned Trump specifically and negative interest rates that we might end up with here. Yeah, it's pretty crazy because, I mean, even Jeet said, like the most educated people, you know, uh, have no idea what's going on right now. They, they have no idea what to expect and no idea actually what is even going on. I mean, if you look at all... Uh, some of the some of the biggest economists, some of the biggest people in finance, uh, they, they really just don't have any idea what's going on and, and what what to expect. So I think that's really important to understand, uh, and especially uh, you know if their understanding of Bitcoin is going to be limited as well. Um, there is uh, Simon. For, so, so for example, Simon Dixon is one of probably one of one of the people I respect most in traditional finance, and you know he he'll, he'll he's, he straight up tells you in his videos that these people simply don't know what's actually going on. Even the people at the ECB, the people in these meetings, sometimes don't understand what, what's going on. So it's just important to understand that look, um, the, the 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 big people, the big guys, the the governments and central banks, they do not have it all figured out right now. We are in unprecedented times, and nobody really knows what's going to happen in this uh, this ongoing global paradigm shift that we're experiencing right now. So I think, um, it, but I, I do think people are, some people are beginning to recognize, like you also said, uh, some people are really beginning to recognize uh, some of the parts of the current financial system are unsustainable, especially like, you know, like you said, like when, 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 when do people actually give up? Is it 3%? Is it 4%? Is it 5%? I don't know. But with each percent, more and more people start to see the cracks. And I think that's just really important because eventually the jig uh, will be up. And, and, you know, we have so many, uh, like, like, like Jeet said, also, there's just not a whole lot of things for in institutional investors to really uh, sink their teeth into right now. I mean, because people are scared and we have people like VanX, SolidX, right? They're, they're going to do uh, pilots uh, a bit of a Bitcoin offering called um, the, uh, the BT, a BTF, right? Which is not an ETF for directly for retail investors, but a BTF, which is more for the institutional investors it's called a broker traded fund. And I think they're doing that right just to prove uh, that, they're, that, a, that an ETF product is viable, that they can handle this stuff, right? That this is actually possible, that people want this, that there is demand. So uh, we see steps like this moving forward, little steps like this. And of course, Pomp, uh, Anthony Pompiano has a fund, I believe, uh, maybe G, you know the name of it, that, that recently had uh, some pension funds invest in it as well. Morning Creek uh, Asset. Yeah, Morgan Creek. Yep. So these little steps, these little steps, we see them being made little bit by little bit. And with each one, uh, more people understand uh, and more people are recognizing the Bitcoin name as a brand, as, as all sorts of things. And really, most importantly, we're starting to see, or almost most importantly, we're starting to see Bitcoin being talked about as a safe haven, right, on, on CNBC and on, by all these huge economists. When it's only 10 years into the game, when Bitcoin is only 10 years old, we're already talking about it as a possible safe haven. So I think people really are starting to get it a, a little bit um, where, where they need to get it. And we just have to wait and see what happens. All right. Let's let now we're talking about Europe. Let's uh, move on to uh, something else that's going on in Europe. And I'll start with Vortex on this. France will halt the development of Facebook's planned Libra cryptocurrency in Europe because it threatens the monetary sovereignty of governments. Well, that's what France says. Uh, do you think France will be able to do that? Um, your thoughts on that, Vortex? Yeah, so I think this just echoes back. This is beautiful for me. I mean, everything about Libra has been just beautiful for me because it's just one thing after another proving why Bitcoin, why we need Bitcoin, why Bitcoin exists, why Bitcoin still exists, uh, one, one thing after another. And, and of course, one of these things is permissionless innovation, right? So there, there is nobody that can technically stop Bitcoin. There is, at least as we understand it today, there's nobody that can go out there and just say, uh, get Bitcoin on the phone and be like, look, guys, look, we, we don't like what you're doing. We're going to have to, sorry, we're going to have to kick you out of our country. There's no ability for a, a country to do that, but there is an ability to stop Libra, right? There is an ability to say, no, you know what? We're not gonna, we're not gonna have Libra here. Uh, they can do that uh, very easily. But that's the whole thing that 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 really Bitcoin brings to the table here is this permissionless innovation. Is this open, borderless, decentralized, permissionless innovation type of network here that anybody can participate in? So uh, for me, for me, this is just highlighting more and more of why Bitcoin is important, and and maybe even um, why altcoins aren't so important. Because guys, look, if 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 Libra can be kicked out of a country. What do you think they can do to some altcoin, you know, like Ethereum or some some other altcoin like Tezos or whatever? Insert a name that you want to pick, right? Doesn't matter. Uh, they they can absolutely absolutely stop that because these because most of these altcoins are are in fact centralized. Bitcoin being the only actual decentralized public blockchain at scale, these other coins can absolutely be thwarted and say. And one day France can wake up and be like, you know what? We're not gonna. We're, we're not a big fan of EOS. Uh, we're we're not gonna let that. Uh, we're not going to let our businesses participate in that uh, in that particular blockchain. And so this is what's possible with, with these types of centralized solutions. And uh, I think uh, it's very, very just, again, highlighting uh, the importance of Bitcoin and why Bitcoin can't be stopped. Mm. Do you think, though, that uh, Facebook, 
that this is just a threat to Facebook. Maybe they want a little uh, compensation or a little, some compromise from Facebook that they'll be able they'll be able to get through. Because I, you know, I, I think I personally it's think all a game, right? Yeah. It's all a game, right, Adam? I mean, this is all a game. I mean, you know, we saw what happened to Julian Assange, right, when Ecuador uh, gave up Julian Assange in exchange for a $4 billion stimulus, right, from the central bank. So it's, it's all a game. We, we see what's, what's going on. And it's just a matter of, you know, uh, who's going to still want to play their game and who's going to want to finally uh, just give up and say, you know what, we're going to go play this other game over here called Bitcoin where, <laughs> where it's a lot easier uh, for, for the average person to get into, where we can have predictable monetary policy. Uh, I, think, I think it highlights that. All right, G, your thoughts on France and uh, Facebook? Yeah, I, I think the, uh, they, were, uh, they were quoting um, the French finance minister. And uh, the thing that really stuck out to me was, I mean, he just straight up said, it's, uh, we're not going to cede our, our monetary national sovereignty to like one entity that just happens to have 2 billion users. And um, it's kind of interesting because the way that he frames it is that they're, it's, like a, it's like confrontational. So I think that, Libra may have made a mistake and, you know, since they are centralized, the benefit of that should be that they're hiring a ton of like marketing and regulatory people and then visiting every single major country and then speaking with those people ahead of time, making them aware before any public announcements. Instead, you hear, well, you know, XYZ billion dollar US uh, American tech company, uh, Facebook, which is responsible for um, data privacy issues, which Europeans are very sensitive about. Uh, is launching a currency and it's going to take over every other currency. So you can imagine the French finance minister is just sitting there like, not on my watch. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of a, you know, in addition to obviously having like a ton of uh, their, their citizens, like switching to Libra in a crisis, that's like a, like a risk for France, obviously, uh, and for all the other EU countries. But I think it's more like, you know, when somebody is trying to establish a government, uh, like there are certain sources of authority minting your own coin is literally like like the most old school way you can imagine to to establish that you're uh like a sovereign entity and you're a sovereign country so it's like they're they're going to france and taking away or competing with them on their own soil so i can imagine the french finance minister is probably feeling a little bit nationalistic and just laid into them that way yeah yeah it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a brave new world we're entering where uh, corporations will be able to co compete on, on the turf of these countries uh, with what they used to have a monopoly on. So I can well, see. Oh, yes. What's crazy, Adam, is that like they were, Facebook was supposed to thwart this whole problem, right, by having a basket of currencies. So yes. everybody can play. Everybody's a part of Facebook. And, and of course, that had the absolute opposite effect because uh, even if they – were to go to just with the U.S. dollar uh, that was backing the thing, it would still not get any more support. So they tried to get a basket of currencies to get more support, and that still didn't help because people, I think, are wise to the fact that what you said, uh, the, the, a sovereign entity is recognizable most by their currency, right? Yeah. They just added the Singapore uh, dollar to their uh, basket, I think I, I read. Who knows what gimmick they'll come up with next or if they'll be able to bribe France we, we shall see. I, um, I, I still think that if it does get off the ground, I think it'll be good for Bitcoin because uh, it'll get uh, people in the cryptocurrency and then some of them will find out what the real thing is. Now, here's the, sorry, oh, yes. Adam, I was just going to say, here's the, other, here's the other take on this. Facebook is trying to be like the, the next generation of Tether, right? Yes. So Tether is for large OTC traders, uh, you know, going in between exchanges and in between each other and going back and forth between countries. Libra is basically saying we want to do Tether, but we want to do it at a smaller scale and, you know, across even more people so that the government can't track, the governments can't track it. So that, that just feels pretty controversial. And like, you know, you, like you pointed out, it's not permissionless. You know, if you're playing the game where you have to, uh, if, you're, if you're playing the game of dealing with governments, then you should do it the right way. Otherwise, I, you're, they're kind of making promises to their customers that they're probably not going to be able to keep. All right, let's let's move on to another controversial entity, uh, Coinbase. <laughs> Coinbase may soon get into the business of initial exchange offerings, Vortex. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of crazy. I mean, so look, every I think everybody's aware at this point of the failure of uh, ICOs. Um, that was Ethereum's main use case at the time. They keep changing their use case, of course, uh, what it's supposed to be. But uh, for 2017, it was the um, 
ICO machine. And I think everybody's aware at this point now uh, that, uh, that ICOs was, was a bubble. It was absolutely a bubble. Uh, there was a whole lot of projects that um, did a whole lot of harm to the space. You know, over 99% of them uh, failed and uh, over 99% of them were scams. And so uh, we, have, we, have, we have actual evidence to know that uh, that particular idea of investment is not such a great idea. Uh, but then somebody was like, you know what? Binance was like, you know, we're, we're, we're going to sort of, we're going we're gonna to do ICOs again, but this time it'll be through us and it'll be all fine. Everybody will be okay. Everybody can participate and it'll be fine. Uh, what happened there, of course, still more scammy, scammy, scammy projects. I mean, the scammiest of all projects you can think of has gone, has now gone through Binance in an IEO and, and it has, we see the same result. Uh, almost all of them are scams. Almost all of them don't do anything. Uh, very, very, very few are actual honest technology trying to contribute to the space. Uh, so most of it is just pumped and dumped. Uh, if you look back at the stats of the ICOs, you can see that um, all of them are underwater and almost all of them have spent like 80% of their balance sheet. Like it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, uh, just trying to stay afloat, trying to stay survive. So I, I don't expect these IEOs to be a whole lot different. Um, I think everybody at some point, every exchange is going to launch an IEO. Uh, it's just, again, more profit for them until regulations catch up once again and stop them from doing that. So it takes a couple of years. Um, people are going to create, you know, people are going to find new opportunities. That's not going to stop, uh, especially now in this permissionless kind of space that is crypto. Uh, you really can just sort of start doing all sorts of things. I mean, if you look at what Binance did, they just launched a token and then they moved to this country and then moved to this country and, you know, then they launched IEOs and um, and now they're launching an exchange in, in the U.S. and just uh, the end of, uh, I think, end of September. So it's, <laughs> you can, uh, in this type of world, people are going to absolutely, uh, try to move fast and break things. And that's, of course, a, a big difference between sort of the Bitcoin ecosystem and the rest of the ecosystem. But the rest of the ecosystem, absolutely all day long, will try to move, face, uh, move fast and break things, try to find that opportunity and until regulation catches up. So this is just, I think, another example of that. And I would say be, again, very weary, guys, of, of these IEOs. They're really no different than the ICOs. And we see diminishing returns on them already. The IEOs are already starting to have diminishing returns. So the, I, the IEO bubble might be even... Uh, drying up faster than the ICO bubble. But what's this say about Coinbase that they want to diversify into this thing of all things? Yeah, so I think I, I think it's it split the company in half really at this point. Uh, the, the, they're they recently in the last year or two made this huge company wide decision to make this focus, make altcoins a huge focus. They really wanted to diversify into all these different altcoin uh, types of solutions and things for customers. And what we've seen again is you know. There is no liquidity on these tokens and on these coins. Coinbase is supporting tokens that literally have $2,000 of trading volume in 24 hours. Just complete nonsense. Just, just unethical to the point of unethical. To the point of it being unethical uh, that there's so low liquidity on these tokens, and so um, the Coinbase, I think, is going to continue to down this particular road uh, for at least a, another six months to a year, as that is what they've um, really been going headstrong in for the past couple of years. But uh, you know, all, all I think of the smart people of Coinbase have left long ago, long before this this new. Um, this new business strategy of diversification into altcoins. We've seen what happens to the altcoins. Um, you know, they definitely over time continue to lose value when it comes to Bitcoin, uh, when it comes, when it's measured in Bitcoin. So uh, really Coinbase is going to still go down this down, uh, down this road. They're going to lose money. They're going to lose their customers money, just like they have been for the past couple of years with their business decisions on. Um, this is going to be uh, no different. I mean, I think it's well aware at this point that Coinbase is the punching bag of the space. They've made just incorrect step, wrong step after wrong step after wrong step. Uh, and uh, this is just yet another, I think, step in the wrong direction for Coinbase. Gee, how, with all this being said, how can they uh, pull off an IPO? I do, uh, what do you, what do you think about them going in this direction? It's going to be interesting to see if they can pull off an IPO in the altcoin bear market. Like that, that, that would be funny, but I don't think they're going to be that stupid. I think they're going to wait for Bitcoin, you know, to be at least 50K, jumpstart another altcoin market, and uh, they'll probably launch around then. But again, guys, the, these altcoin markets, if you look over time, uh, they just, they just come, come, come continuously crash back down uh, to this overall medium. And that line, guys, is going to be broken one day. Uh, you know, one day when, when the world figures, finally figures out that most of the stuff uh, isn't viable for, for consumer grade for institutional grade, for any grade uh, of consumer uh, or of, of customer, I think that the, the world is going to wake up. It's going to take some time, but it's but eventually the world's going to wake up that most of these altcoins just aren't worth billions and billions of dollars, especially when they have less than tens of thousands of dollars in 24-hour trading volume. Yeah. I, um, so, I, I, you know, th that's the key point that um, I think a lot of people miss. Like, you know, when you think about like fundamental value and what is actually driving, you know, it's easy to talk and say that, you know, hey, this, you guys have probably seen those charts where it compares the features of the different coins. 
Um, but the way to think about like something that can compete with, with currencies and, and be a store of value is not like simply copying and pasting the code. It's one, you got to either write something that's original, like Satoshi Nakamoto did. Um, and then he's, he's able to capture the bulk of attention. And the people that are, are writing on Bitcoin aren't necessarily like writing code for economic reasons. Some of these people are like, they're, they're um, you know, they're motivated, they're motivated, uh, they're intrinsically motivated by like the fun of doing it and the joy that they get from working on like the best system. Like a lot, like a lot of other open source software, like they're maintain, you know, there'll be billions of users or hundreds of millions of users. And you know, it turns out there's like two guys and a cat that are maintaining the whole system. But those guys are obsessed with that system and they're never going to quit. So those, you know, hundreds of millions of users could be there or they could not be there. The developers will still be there. And I think around Bitcoin, it, you know, there's coalesced this, group of developers, this group of hodlers, this group of people who are going to be putting out content. Like I can imagine Vortex putting out content no matter what, right? I don't think he's going to just stop if the Bitcoin price goes to 1000. It's, it's going to be game on even more. I'll join that's you. It. I'm done. I'm, I'm out. <laughs> so, so that's the type of thing when you get people doing stuff for uneconomic reasons and from a place that doesn't come from an expected value calculation, but it comes from like, you know what, this is the right thing to do, or this is just what I'm interested in doing. Like that's when you get a beautiful system. Like that's how you get something like Wikipedia going when you just get people who are all kind of coordinating together. Um, and so that's why uh, I, I, I love everything that you guys are saying about altcoins because you know, as much as like, I like some of the people who are doing these altcoins and I like the ideas of some of the projects, um, the problem is that they're not very serious about it because they're always launching to make, you know, you can just see they always um, embed themselves a pre-mine or some kind of feature so that they get paid. And it, like what they're doing is taking their chips off the table. And that's just a signal for, for you as an investor in the crypto space that they may not be as serious as you think. Um, sorry, I was going to jump into Coinbase. Yeah, please, please, yes. Yeah, yeah, so the only other thing I would say about Coinbase is I think a couple of shows ago, um, I brought up Coinbase versus Binance and how this was going to be like the, you know, Tyson versus Ali type of situation. Um, Binance has rolled up uh, liquidity outside of the United States. They have every single altcoin. Um, and they have all these like cool little features that they're adding all the time. And Coinbase has the U.S. market. As a reminder, the U.S. market is worth far more. Like your college student in the United States with their lunch money has more money sometimes than somebody who could be like, um, you know, like a, like a, a post-college employee um, in, in other countries. So each customer in the United States is worth so much more than customers in the other areas. But because Binance has um, a tight feedback loop with all their customers, and their, their customers are constantly giving them feedback and they're, they're figuring out problems for their customers. They have all these cool features and stuff that people love. So the um, IEOs, like, I agree with you. I, I have not invested in any of these IEOs, but um, the, the, their launch pad, which is like, the, they're trying to make like a Y Combinator for crypto. Um, they're attracting all the, the smart teams in, in Asia to come and work for them. And then they're attracting all of the attention from people who are interested in investing. And, and so they're just kind of doing the right thing. So I don't agree with like, you know, I wouldn't invest, but they're, they're doing what is correct to do from a business perspective to gain attention and to like win the game. And the game is ultimately winning the U S market because it's the most valuable. So, you know, now they've cut out all the U S users, they're launching a new exchange in the U S. And so you can imagine um, the people in Coinbase who are thinking about like, what is their differentiator? Historically, it's been, they're the only reliable exchange in the United States. Well, guess what? For the last two years, anybody who's wanted to uh, invest in, in altcoins, they've generally used Binance. They're familiar with it and they, they kind of trust it. Um, maybe not to the point of a Coinbase, but in general, uh, a lot of folks trust Binance and, and, um, and, and CZ. They know that like, he just kind of has like a very positive customer service mindset where they're like refunding money all the time if they make mistakes and all that stuff. So now um, Coinbase is probably trying to fill the gaps of where they can't compete with Binance effectively. One, that's altcoins. So, um, you know, they added Dash recently. I doubt that they would have added Dash if Binance wasn't entering the United States, and, and along with some of the other ones that they've added. And then um, it looks like they're also um, thinking about getting into security token offerings and, and, and IEOs, and they've bought some of these broker-dealers, the people who have broker-dealer licenses, which allows them to sell securities. They're just kind of positioning themselves so that six months from now, they're not going to be caught off guard when Binance starts doing more IEOs, but they do their first IEO in the United States, for example. So I think that they need to uh, fill in the gaps so that when I'm making a choice between where do I you know, park my money and to all my trading, 
Like, where do I want to trade? Do I want to trade in Coinbase where I can trade like four altcoins, five altcoins? Or do I want to go to Binance where I have like the entire gamut of altcoins? Um, now, and, and, oh yeah, it's continue, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, well, so like, because we don't, we don't think in those terms, right? I mean, we're pretty conservative guys investing in Bitcoin and we know that we're going to win long term, but day to day, um, the traders, I think, are what makes a lot of the profit for these guys, for the exchanges. So they're catering to the traders. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, winning over the traders and getting the correct mindset is what's going to win. And there's, there's some interesting moves that Kraken has made as well in this space to try to compete. Um, they've got, uh, I think it's called uh, Coin Switch, or let's see what's called. Crypto Watch, it's called. So um, there's a, uh, there's a um, it's kind of like a dashboard or an overlay or a Bloomberg terminal for trading IEOs. There's this, um, there's this service called uh, CoinFox, that's K-O-I-N-F-O-X. And this is launched by a couple of dudes uh, sitting in India. They want to trade. They want to tr trade altcoins. So they started setting up, they started giving tools to normal people so they could, you know, get into the, uh, get into the IEOs at, at the right price in Binance. And so people love that. And so they started teaming up with Binance and, you know, they were launching events together. And I think that Kraken seeing that is like, how do we get involved in that? And they've, they've launched a competing product now. It looks like CryptoWatch. Um, and, and also Binance launched futures. Now Kraken is launching futures. Like they're all trying to like fill in the gap of what they're missing somehow. So that's the kind of big theme that I see. Oh, wow. You impulsive traders, you're fueling a war between these, <laughs> these organizations. Strong hand, you non-traders. Don't be tempted by all these fancy uh, K words or whatever that was. It starts with a K, but it is, I won't say it again. I don't want anyone to. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was spelled in such a trendy. It's spelled S Q U A R E C A. Let's. Well, we're on the topic of altcoins. Ethereum's been on. Both you guys tweet about Ethereum sometimes. Uh, Vortex. What's the latest? What's the latest with Ethereum? Uh, there's still, I have no idea. All I know is that they're still working on Ethereum 2.0. They're supposed to launch that version in January, but I think that just recently got delayed as well. Uh, back to, I don't even think they have a date on that actually at this point, but I am the wrong guy to ask about Ethereum. I can tell you that it's been pretty fun watching Eric Wall uh, try to sync a, a Geth node. That's been pretty hilarious. Uh, it was a Geth or parody. Uh, I forget what he's running now. Oh, no, it's a parody. He was, uh, Eric Wall was trying to sync a parody node. Uh, it took him 20 five days and several crashes and several uh, uh, freezes before he actually got it. But he actually got it synced as of today. Uh, the journey is now over. He actually got it synced uh, 25 days. It was one heck of a journey. But again, guys, I mean, this is, this is where Ethereum is right now in 2019. What do you, what, how long is it going to take to sync a node in, in just five years from now? Maybe even just three years from now, right? When they have like, what, two minute blocks or something ridiculous. Uh, it, it's absolutely in, insanity over there. So of course, they're trying to uh, restart this thing from scratch and Ethereum 2.0. Uh, and of course, we have the leader of Ethereum, Vitalik, even saying things like, you know, Ethereum 1.0, now, there was never any flipping. There was never any plan to, uh, to flip in Bitcoin. There was never any plan to be a world computer. No, it was just a scrappy little project by, made by a couple of different developers. And it's like, guys, um, they certainly didn't market it like that for the past few years. Uh, so that was, was pretty interesting to have a quote like that from Vitalik. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just it, these altcoins, they just fuel the, the, the speculation. This is why all these exchanges exist. This is why all these IEOs and ICOs exist, the traders and the speculation. And, you know, and, and that's fine. That's always going to be uh, a part of markets and especially a part of Bitcoin because that is, you know, what, what, what drove Bitcoin a lot and still drives Bitcoin uh, in these days. Uh, even though we have actually actual use case scenarios, we have Bitcoin ATMs everywhere. We have Lightning Network. You know, we have people actually using this stuff for, for, um, for buying things we have with BTC Pay Server uh, and things like that. So, uh, there, and of course, we have the financialization of, of Bitcoin uh, with, pro with products on Wall Street, uh, like these options and futures and, and things that BACT is launching. So, you know, it, it's, it's, you really have to um, compare Bitcoin and Ethereum every once in a while just to sort of keep your sanity to, to because it, because people pump Ethereum still to this day like crazy. There are there are tweet there are people on Twitter out there that are tweeting almost every day that that Ethereum is money, that Ethereum is digital gold. Uh, there at this point, I think Ethereum has tried to take every single one of Bitcoin's memes. I think the latest one is um, stacking 
do GWEI is like stacking sats. <laughs> one, one of their, one of their stable coins, right? It's like stacking sats. Sure guys, stacking stable coins, definitely like stacking sats all day long. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, it not, uh, to be honest, again, I'm not going to, you know, comment exactly what's going on over there. I, because again, Bitcoin just takes so much of my time. There's so many things happening in Bitcoin that it's really hard for me to, to pay attention to other chains, but definitely the stuff comes across my, my Twitter sphere and, and my timeline. And so I definitely tweet some of these things like somebody actually attempting to try to sync an Ethereum node. That adventure was very, very, very interesting. And I encourage everybody to check out that tweet and find out uh, what it's like, actually like to work on Ethereum um, when you're trying to uh, work on Ethereum without any other central players in there, without any other third parties, without any other, uh, any other person in your way. And, and it's really difficult at this point. It's, it's near impossible. And I think in the next couple of years, it's going to be really, really impossible, which is why, of course, they're starting this Ethereum 2.0 type of thing. But guys, if you, if you, if, if I, I tweeted this out, I'm like, have any one of your engineers in one of your companies, if anybody is part of a company, have any one of your engineers, take a look at any one of these roadmaps and any one of these design documents, it, they're going to fall over laughing. It's, it's absolute absurdity, uh, some of the things that they're trying to do. And I'm all for experimentation, and that's great. There's going to be all sorts of interesting things that comes out of Ethereum at some point. Uh, but yeah, it really, uh, for the most part, I can't pay a whole lot of attention to it. All right. I knew you'd have something to say about it. Is it your, again, follow these both these dudes, Jeet and Vortex. They are linked to below. Uh, Jeet, your, your thoughts on Ethereum, they do have a lot of developers. They do have conferences. There's a big one going on in Tel Aviv soon. People are building stuff on it. What, what's going on? Yeah, I think, um, so So let me comment first on something that Vortex said, which is incredibly important. So, um, you know, there is a significant amount of uh, sneering and kind of looking down on statements like, sync your own full node. Or, you know, anytime somebody brings that up, there's always somebody who's like a smart aleck. You know, they're probably like a journalist or they have a blue check mark and they'll explain why well, what are you going to do, um, you, you know, if the government seizes your, your Bitcoin full node? The world never, like, nothing is ever that extreme. All that matters is that I can buy a Raspberry Pi for $35 and I can sync my full node very quickly uh, and easily. And there's like, it's not very complicated. Like, I've done it a couple of times now and, and explained to people how to do it. It's not like, it, it is, it is, you know, it's not something that I, my grandma could do, but it is something that any reasonable, like, college educated or high school educated person can sync up. Um, and what that does is it allows whoever has that node to validate the state of the blockchain. So if, so if we have 1 million people who are validating and, and can you know, validate the transactions that are coming into them, that's 1 million people who agree on the state of what's going on. Whereas for Ethereum, if you have only like six companies that can run a node, and I'm exaggerating, I, I know there's probably more nodes than six, but it, it reduces- There's probably the 12. Yeah. <laughs> it reduces the validator set. So it means that there's less people who are doing the validating. So if you have, so then all the other million users of Ethereum would be depending on those six parties. And that's a trusted third party, which uh, Nick Zabo writes about. And it's exact situation that uh, EOS was in, in China. It, you know, when you have 12 people in a room, it's very, it's very easy for them to start creating a cartel and discriminating against the normal users um, because they have all the power to validate and the obstacles are too high for normal people to set up their own node. So, that is like a superpower that Bitcoin has is that they just literally your spam filter in Bitcoin needs to be like through the roof because you don't want to be the person who's adding on junk and you don't want to like fall prey to whatever junk science people are throwing out there. Like Bitcoin is fine as it is. And uh, anybody who's trying to, you know, add on different features, they're probably a scam and you should be extremely suspect. Um, so that was one thing. The second thing was the memes. So Ethereum, the Ethereum people have uh, really ramped up their meme game and I kind of admire it because you know, Bitstein, uh, it's B-I, I don't know how, how you spell it. Uh, he, he has this- uh, Michael Goldstein is his name. Michael, Michael Goldstein, okay, I, there you go. He's one of the guys from the Nakamoto Institute, right? So uh, they had a talk in, in, a, in, a, in a conference recently, if you just type in Michael Goldstein meme or something about um, how a debate should happen. And it's kind of funny because the stuff that he talks about, the Ethereum people have actually started to adopt and uh, they're much, they have much stronger kind of memes and, and uh, arguments and they're, they're kind of playing around now. So instead of being like triggered by any time somebody brings up Ethereum's like technical de de defects, they kind of turn it into a positive, just like Bitcoin people do when you explain like, why is there no adoption or something, right? It's like, well, you just got to stay super positive until that adoption happens. And so they're trying to kind of play the same game. So they're essentially like copying and pasting a lot of the memes that Bitcoin people have used into Ethereum. And so it's, 
um, it's, it's getting harder um, to, to kind of pierce through that. Um, and then that being said, in terms of what's happening on Ethereum, there is like a lot of activity. Um, the base layer is it's still not clear how uh, 2.0 is going to happen. So it's extremely unstable. But uh, I think a lot of what's happening is the DeFi, the uh, decentralized finance. People are launching different things. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see where it goes. Like a lot of it seems like kind of interesting. But the problem is that uh, it's, it's like there's too many layers of complexity and there's too many layers of things that were built in a week. And it's not clear that they're going to last the, the, the kind of test of time. So um, there's a lot of experimentation going on. Hopefully something successful happens with it. Uh, you know, I, I root for DAI, uh, Maker, you know, MakerDAO, um, their stablecoin DAI. It seems like they have the potential to like go to a place that, you know, doesn't have crypto adoption and they don't have other options to try it, but they haven't succeeded yet. So um, I wouldn't recommend buying anything other than Bitcoin, um, but it's kind of fun to watch people do these experiments. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Ethereum people are trying, the developers are trying, the people who are like in the, the trenches, so to speak, are definitely trying. But if you built on an unstable base layer, like it's not going to amount to much. So um, hopefully we'll just be prepared when they want to start building on Bitcoin. Vortex, 70% Bitcoin dominance. You, you, you mentioned earlier that eventually um, the altcoins are just going to, well, pop downward. Uh, do you see the dominance increasing soon? So I don't like, I really hate this freaking metric. You know, I really, really do. Um, because obviously what we're trying to say here is that uh, Bitcoin is, should be measured against all of these other chains, whether they're tokens, whether they're not tokens, whether they're stable coins, whether they use proof of work or not, whether they're proof of stake. And of course, that to me is just kind of kind of insanity. But of course, the metric is still still does get used uh, because we need some kind of measurement uh, to measure Bitcoin against everything else. Uh, and so this is what, what, what is used. And it has reached 70% uh, dominance at this point. Uh, again, many people have, have predicted this that was going to happen eventually uh, over time. Uh, it's just, it's really, uh, in my opinion, just a matter of time. So we, we, because remember, everything sort of history rhymes that all the stuff sort of plays out like, a, like um, over and over again. So, uh, you know, we're having some of these, uh, I guess, I guess you call them blockchain wars at this point, really Bitcoin won long time ago, but uh, people are still trying to uh, try to take over Bitcoin or, or be, sorry, uh, um, take Bitcoin spot. Right. And so uh, they're still trying to still trying to come up with these different ideas, come up with these different uh, things and see if they can take over Bitcoin. But really what we've seen time and time again is that uh, their value continues to be lost uh, against Bitcoin. And so really uh, at this point, um, the alts are never going to go away completely. Of course. I mean, this is, you can't just tell people to stop programming. That's, that's not gonna, that's not going to happen. And of course, sometimes I catch flack for, for, for not, for telling people that I'm not a quote unquote Bitcoin maximalist. Cause you know, I, I do believe in experimentation. I do believe that uh, not every single person in the planet is a scammer. I, just most and so that there are there are some people out there that do want to do some good and do want to do some experimentation and simply don't understand that like uh the intricacies of, of bitcoin and, and ethereum and which one they should work on because guys this is new stuff this is not this is not easy this is this is new this has only been around for a few years and of course the world has really only understood about has really only heard about bitcoin since 2013 really uh that's when the world sort of found out about it when it had that uh that big boom up to 1200 and so um i think that oh, oh I, like i said i think over time uh, people are going to realize this more and more. And again, this stuff really repeats. If you look back into the 90s, you can see these protocol wars, uh, TCPIP versus other protocols. Uh, there was a huge suite of protocols that the teleco companies tried to come up with and compete with TCPIP, compete with these open source protocols. But of course, the open source went out because it was just more accessible. Anybody and everybody anywhere could build on it. And that's what's important, this permissionless innovation, this innovation at the edges. And this is uh, how you gain network effects. This is how you create networks that have network effects. Effects, uh, that can just at some point uh, become insurmountable. Uh, for example, like uh, like uh, like TCP/IP itself. I mean, it was at version four uh, for so many many years, and even to this day, it's mostly version four IPs out there. Uh, ver TCP/IP version six is very 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 seldomly used, uh, and uh, they just started really building it into the to, to the operating systems, the server operating systems, in the past couple of years. So this 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 takes time. Uh, network effects are real, uh, and they do um, they do take time. They do they do become at some point impossible to serve. Um, to surmount really so and that's why that's where the theory comes in about you know bitcoin uh, big, uh the ossification effect of bitcoin at some point being up not being able to to really modify layer one i don't know how much i believe in that fully uh because we do have things like softworks uh, and we do have uh some cl pretty clever developers but at, at at the same time this, this stuff has been has really repeated over and over again and uh i think the market continues to choose the open source the permissionless
seamless way. And at this point, Bitcoin is the only game in town. Bitcoin is the only permissionless, uh, you know, decentralized blockchain at scale. And so I don't, it's only a matter of time before more and more people figure this out. All right, Jeet. Yeah, I, uh, I'm all for soft forks and people signaling, uh, you know, what the right thing to do is. I think the, the argument, um, I, I think I'd like to emphasize uh, the scammer part because uh, I found it really helpful. Like, you know, if you go into uh, investing with the mindset that you're mostly looking at scams, it, it's really helpful because it helps you like dig a little bit deeper to understand like, okay, where is the scammy part? Like what is, like, you know that they're trying to get one over on you. And so it's helpful to, when you're thinking adversarially about it, to, to think about how they're going to try to potentially get one over on you. So one of the things, for example, that I think is kind of controversial is the idea that um, you increase Bitcoin privacy on the base layer. So not through mixers, but through um, whatever technology they're planning to use. Um, and it's kind of funny because when you look at the parallel in Zcash, um, you know, you run into these situations where Zcash has the best developers in ZK snarks. Um, it's, you know, the, the uh, shielded addresses are actually shielded. Nobody's broken that yet. But uh, it's not, there's a section of Zcash which is not transparent. So it's not clear how many Zcash are in that shielded section. Um, and then a few uh, months ago, I think there was this, uh, there was this error or this flaw where it turns out that um, somebody who, who found that out could have exploited it to create an unlimited amount of Zcash in the shielded section. So nobody else would have been able to validate uh, the, the total supply of Zcash. In Bitcoin, anybody can validate it because it's all visible. And the risk is that if you start obscuring it too much to the point that it's hard to validate, then you run into the problem that Zcash has where um, there was literally like two engineers who caught it. And so you need to not only know programming, not only know like, uh, you know, specific blockchains, you need to be very, very familiar with ZK snarks and then very, very familiar with this particular code base. So these types of attack vectors do exist. Somebody could have exploited it. And the only people who caught it was one of two people. And you know what? These are nice people. They're very smart people. And, you know, I trust them, but uh, I don't trust them that much. <laughs> I don't trust them to the point that I'm going to like, you know, invest my life savings or I'm going to, you know, recommend other people invest their life savings or use it as a base layer. If these fundamental types of errors pop up and the only people who can validate it are people who live, you know, in the United States. Um, and, and, uh, we know their names and addresses and everything else. And so some third party could go and just bribe them quite simply. Right. So, um, all these attack vectors exist when you have that obscurity. And then, uh, the thing that I like about Bitcoin, you know, to some extent is that you just don't have that. It, it's pretty chill. Like I don't need to think about it with Zcash. They're making like, in addition to this, uh, shielded stuff, they're also like doing these hard forks all the time. Same thing with Monero. Monero is, is like a top tier next to Bitcoin. Right. But if, if they're hard forking every six months, that's every single time they hard fork. That's another time that you as an investor need to be paying attention where somebody could be, you know, potentially introducing, um, like flaws into the protocol that they can later take advantage of or where the uh, developers could be introducing uh, a type of um, algorithm that, you know, they've already got the ASICs ready for. They could have planned this two years in advance, right? You, you just never know how far in advance or, or what types of games or what type of level you're playing at um, in, in, in um, blockchain or in Bitcoin. So th that's kind of my uh, strong form argument for <laughs> no scammers or no scams or everything is a scam. All right. We have gotten, we are at the end of the show basically. So it's time to, to wrap it up and bring up the subject matters that you want to bring up. Anything that was forgotten, anything you want to add. It's been a blast. Vortex, what do you have? Well, uh, you know, it's not a whole lot of stuff. It was actually a relatively slow week. Um, but I think it was uh, some awesome stuff happening in the privacy space and Bitcoin. Really, uh, we're in an absolute bull market for privacy when it comes to Bitcoin. There's so much technology that is actually being worked on right now. Uh, and again, not so much on the, on the base layer Monero style, uh, as, Zeke, uh, as G just said. But really, uh, we're, we're at the transaction layer is where a lot of this stuff is happening. And so we have things like um, the Samurai Whirlpools. Uh, they're just continuously reaching new all-time highs uh, of cycles every single month, steadily month over month. I think they hit over 380 cycles um, just in the first 12 days uh, for month of September. So a lot more people using that. Uh, that's going to be really great. More people running Whirlpool servers. Uh, so that's really great. I'm going to see more and more of that. We need to run Whirlpool servers. We need to run eCash servers and Charmium eCash servers and we will be and Lightning Nodes. And I think we can scale Bitcoin to the planet privacy, uh, privately. So that's going to be really cool. And then we got uh, the new Wasabi wallet, uh, the release of version 1.17. They just released a, a brand new version. They continue to, to, um, to optimize uh, 
the wallet over there and optimize uh, everything over there about that wallet, about their coin joins that they have over there. So that's the, the Wasabi wallet is the wallet that allows you to do coin joins. Uh, again, more privacy at the transactional layer. Um, they have added a couple things like manual transaction fee settings and uh, some Bitcoin URL support, which is interesting. Uh, that's pretty cool to see. And so uh, as a web developer, that's, that's what's interesting to me. Uh, and then of course, and you have Trezor uh, introducing their uh, Shamir backups, which is pretty awesome based on Shamir's secret sharing, uh, which I think is pretty interesting because that allows you to really uh, securely split up your seed, uh, which is pretty interesting because you could do like a two of three on your seed. Uh, but if somebody gets that one, uh, they, they, they're still screwed. They can't do anything where if you just like maybe chop up your seed into like three pieces, like maybe somebody can guess the final words, right? But when you're doing a Chalmium or Chalmium, when you're doing a Shamir actual secret sharing, uh, you have to have at least two of those three. You can't just have one. So that's, that's pretty interesting to see. Um, uh, again, a practical example of this would be, you know, uh, a two of, uh, a two of three sort of backup of your list. So I think uh, more and more privacy stuff is really happening in Bitcoin. I'm really excited about that. I'm trying to pay attention to it all, but there's just, uh, just, just so much. And then finally, uh, there is a big lightning conference that I really want to, um, Make sure everybody knows about the Lightning Conference, the world's first Lightning Conference. Uh, Elizabeth Stark, of course, is, is, is going to be a part of that. Lightning Labs is over there uh, uh, throwing this thing together. It is the lightningconference.com, and that is being held in Berlin, uh, October 19th and 20th. Highly recommend everybody go over there and check that out because, I mean, all, all the OGs like to brag about the first Bitcoin conference that they went to. You know, you got Trace, you got Max, uh, right? Trace Mayer, Max Kaiser, some of these people, some of these really early OG people uh, bragging about all the time. I was at that, that first uh, uh, Bitcoin conference. But, but guess what, guys? You can have the chance to be at the world's first lightning conference uh, this, uh, this fall in Berlin, so this October. So check that out. I, I would go if I could. Uh, I really, uh, unfortunately, that, uh, I have some other things I have to do. But man, October 19th and 20th, if they would have if they would only announced that just a week later, I could have gone. But, but I recommend everybody going. Uh, it really is going to be awesome, guys. And I think it's, uh, there's going to be a whole lot of buzz around lightning during that time. That's going to generate massive amounts of buzz because, guys, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people out in the world right now working on lightning projects because they understand that this really is uh, Bitcoin's best shot at, at scaling transactions uh, at layers above layer one. So uh, definitely check that out. And I think that's all for me. Oh, but you forgot one thing, CryptoCast Network. Oh, of course. You can find out everything about me and uh, everything I do over on my Twitter account, at uh, the one vortex, all spelled out at the one vortex. And of course, CryptoCast Network is the YouTube channel that I rep. That is my channel uh, where we have uh, Bitcoin news and information out there all the time. So lots of content there. Uh, the biggest show we do is the Bitcoin News Show. Uh, that's every other Sunday. Our next episode will be airing the next Sunday after this, the Sunday after this, which I think is the 22nd. So I uh, look forward to that. Dude, you got to get Jeet on that show, man. He, yeah. You got to get Jeet on that show. All right, Jeet, you, you got the final word here. What was, uh, what was left out? What do you have to say? Oh, you're muted. You're muted. The most interesting thing I saw on Twitter uh, this past week was, I think, this analysis that uh, somebody had done on, um, on, uh, on Vitalik's coins, and they kind of looked at, well, how much has he cashed out and what's he done? And it's kind of interesting to see that Vitalik, who's like one of the smartest people in this space, underestimated how valuable Ethereum would be and sold a significant portion of his holdings, which were already pre-mined um, too early. So I think that's an important lesson for all of us because it's kind of like I, in addition to um, crypto, I'm also just interested in investing more generally. Um, and there's, a, there's, an interesting pod, there's an interesting podcast, uh, Invest Like the Best. If you guys are interested in investing, you should check it out. Uh, and, and one of the guys there is like a, like an OG investor in Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and he was explaining his biggest regrets. And one of them was a store that he bought that he had, he felt like it had like the, you know, the value investing uh, characteristics, bought it back in like 2000 and uh, it went up 20% and he sold it. And then since he sold it in 2000, it's been a 20 bagger. So it's gone, it's gone up 20 times. Um, and every time he was thinking he should get back in, but then he thought like, look, it's too rich a price. Like I already sold it for such a lower price. I should wait for the price to come down and it never came down. So you can imagine the guy who was sitting there when Bitcoin went from 900 to, uh, you know, 1100 or a thousand and it broke that barrier thinking I'll get it when it's below a thousand again. And it just hasn't gone back down. So, um, not to induce FOMO, like obviously, you know, size your positions and be responsible about not, like, throwing all your money into it. But um, I think it's important to think about the long term because the biggest gains are not going to come next week with a 20% green candle. They're going to come 10 or 20 years down the line when um, Bitcoin scales from being still kind of an early adopter thing into being completely mainstream. So, um, you know, watching, hearing that podcast, 
And then seeing that Twitter thread just kind of uh, highlighted that for me. And um, I hope you guys will you know, follow that too. Uh, that Vitalik uh, analysis, that, that thread, can you send that to me? Because I'll, I'll link to it below. Uh, yes. It was a big deal. Like, I think it was all like on the Coindesk and stuff when he sold, I think he sold like 25%. It was like, what was it like four or $5? It was something really small, really ridiculous. It, it, was, it was pretty bad. Yeah, I, I don't remember the numbers, but I just remember looking at it and thinking like, dude, how could you? <laughs> like, <laughs> I believe it was single digits. You know. it, was, it, was, uh, it was just atrocious. And the, the funny thing was too, it, like, that's part of the problem is with all these altcoins, like Ethereum is a, is a particularly egregious example because it's so successful. And you, know, you think like there's so many people building on it. They should have done the right thing in the beginning and it would have made it more legit. Um, but there's other examples like even Monero those early guys in Monero, Monero is legitimate because they did all the right things. But when they were first uh, launching that coin, they were the early miners and they didn't have the foresight and, and the vision to see that, what, what it could become. So they all sold significant portions of their like holdings very early. So they, they, they sold for cash because they, like, they didn't see that Monero was going to go to, I think like $90 or whatever it's at. Uh, they sold in, in a sense, right? So a lot of the people who are OGs, um, you know, that may not be the person that you want to like look to for investment advice. Ricardo, Ricardo, I remember Ricardo popping the champagne on Twitter at like $4 a coin. Was, yeah, I, I, rem- I, I remember when it went from like two to $4. It do- I mean, it, do- it was a big deal. It was, I, it was 2016. So I, I remember that stuff. Uh, memories, OGs. Oh, uh, okay, dudes. Thank you very much, Jeet and Vortex. Great show. Remember, we do this show every Friday, this week in Bitcoin, uh, and then I do a regular show, the One Bitcoin Show every day. Saturday is Beyond Bitcoin Show, so tune in every day, new show every single day, disruptmeister.com, you can see all the old ones. I'm Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister, Disrupt Meister. Remember, subscribe to the channel, like this video, share this video, check out the links below. Pound that like button, bang that bell button, click on those squares, Shabbat Shalom. We will see you next week and tomorrow. Bye-bye, everyone. See ya.